about 75% of, of our staff folks reported an increased concern in the mental health of their young people. They also reported a 60% increase in, the, in being concerned about their kids around trauma and suicidal ideation. That's a heavy toll for an educator to, to carry. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited today on the line we have Deb Robison. Deb is a licensed a licensed social worker. She has worked for 22 years previously in the school system and is currently the project administrator at the Center for School-Based Mental Health Programs at Miami University. Deb, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show, especially because I think most of the listeners know I'm a public school administrator, and obviously uh, I'm a mental health advocate with the podcast, and I have a blog. So this is just a, a perfect intersection of of all of the work and all of my interests. So I was really glad to to bump in your to your name through an article I was reading. Yes, I, I, it, was, it was an article about the work that we're doing in the student assistance program here in Ohio. Yes. Yep. The Ohio School Wellness Initiative, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit of background of, about the Ohio School Wellness Initiative? Certainly. As everybody has been experiencing the pandemic, the, the governor of Ohio released um, $6 million, which is a, a pretty hefty chunk of change, to through um, the Ohio Department of Education and the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. And they connected with us at the Center for School-Based Mental Health Programs. We have we've done previous work with both of those organizations, and said, "Hey, we've we've got this these dollars, and we want to. Um, we know that our students and our staff are really struggling due to the pandemic. We we know that mental health concerns for children, anyway, have have been a challenge, and we've been put, putting more emphasis on that. But we know that the pandemic really has kind of escalated all of this work." And so with a very quick turnaround time, we put together a, a very quick proposal 
and started to do work in three areas, which was to create a, a school, a, a statewide model for um, a student assistance program, strengthening tier two and tier three services and um, staff wellness services. And, and we were really excited about this staff wellness as, as you know, you know, we clearly we focus on our young people in schools and it was time for us to also think about how our staff are impacted by this sometimes can be challenging work and especially in, in light of a pandemic. So we put all of those things together and um, have really been working on that a little over a year. We've been, we've been kind of putting together resources, doing training. We um, identified 80 schools as pilot schools um, throughout Ohio. And our, our aim was to have schools of various backgrounds. So we, we knew kind of going in that we were, it would be really hard to have one model school or one model program that people could just kind of do the checklist and say, yeah, we got this. Because Ohio, like many states, is, is really diverse. We have urban, we have rural, we have industrial, we have farmland, we have, we have, you know, we have coal mines in the southeast. So we have a lot of different, we have a lot of different families, we have a lot of different school structures. And, and so we were really looking to do something that would, what we call, um, be adoptable and adaptable. So we, we wanted to come up with one overarching model that any school could take and adapt to their school setting. So as part of the pilot, we, we identified eight regions in our state, and we selected 10 schools from each region. And those schools simply just, really, they had to say, we're interested and we'll commit to doing the work. So there wasn't a, a financial means test. There wasn't a discipline test. There was nothing, nothing like that. It was really, we're interested in this and we're interested in doing the work. And, and it sounds and, like no application process or anything. You all kind of handpicked them based on demographics and region and such. Exactly. Okay. We wanted, we wanted elementary, middle, high school. We took um, private schools, parochial schools. We, we have public schools. We have online schools. We have alternative schools, so a, a wide array of schools, because we really want to look at how this model will work across the state. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And how far into having the pilot schools up and running are you? Is this this is the first school year currently? This, Did you start in September? We, it is the first school year. Um, the pilot schools were selected about this time last year. Okay. So they went through some training in June, and we have... In each of our regions, we have a regional team that works directly with those schools, and so they've been working directly with their regional, their regional affiliates and their regional teams. But it's yeah, we're about a year into it. Is each regional team comprised of the same members, such as like a social worker, a psychologist, and such? Um, close. So our regional teams are really made up of the. Of agencies and organizations that serve schools in those areas. So they can be educational service centers. Um, we have a statewide prevention organization called Prevention First, and they have a representative on each of these teams. We have some prevention community service providers on these teams, um, some independent contractor kind of folks. Um, in one region, we have a professor that works on it who's, who is in adolescent um, psychology and psychiatry, so we we um, the, the the range is pretty broad, and the idea is that it was to have 
a, a lead affiliate that would work with these. And then this regional team that would, what we're calling our continuation team. So when the grant is over and it was a really quick turnaround on a grant on the grant. So we, Miami university will be out of, out of this, the grant, um, in September of this year, wow. the, the idea is that the continuation team will be the, the folks that will be there to help our schools maintain this work. Right. Right. And is there a financial piece in order to maintain the programs? The, the only financial piece that we, that we offered the schools is we offered the schools a, a, a fairly small stipend. It was about $5,000 with really very few strings attached. The the idea was we're going into this work as a pilot. Here's $5,000 to do what you think you need to do to address either student assistance programs, you know, increasing tier one or tier two, tier three supports or staff wellness. So um, they had a little bit of money that they could use to, um, to do some of those supports, but there were, there were no other financial. Okay. Um, yeah. So it shouldn't be difficult when the university steps out for them to continue these programs because there's minimal cost to them. That's that's what we're hoping. Okay. And we we've put together in in our short time we've put together a ton of resources. We've created a, a student assistance program manual. Um, we've created a staff wellness manual, and a lot of resources that go along with that. A lot of training. A lot of things on prevention. Um, how, how to identify, you know, students for tier two, tier three. So a lot of those are, um, will, will stay or remain so that schools can use those. Awesome. You know, I was looking through the website. It looked like at least for the staff mental wellness, uh, things hadn't quite been populated. It, it hadn't, that was the, the thing that we, we got a slower start on. Okay. So we are, we're just now kind of, kind of, you know, getting over that hurdle. So we have, um, we contracted with an organization called interpersonal wellness and they're actually out of, um, Canada, right, right across, right across from where you are, I think. Um, and they, they do staff wellness kind of, uh, the whole, the training and facilitation and helping, um, businesses help their employees, um, maintain, you know, a level of staff wellness. And we connected with them, and and really what we decided to do was again based on this model of having eight regions, we we provide the training through interpersonal wellness to to have facilitators in each region that are going to be working with the schools to help them help their schools craft what we're calling a roadmap of wellness. Uh, the the one thing we did do is we we um, agreed to have the the facilitators work a year past the grant since we got a little bit started a little bit later they'll they'll work an additional school year but they're they're being trained in this model um, in this wellness model and then going back to the schools working with the wellness teams at the schools and helping them do assessments and then creating their roadmap for for staff wellness from that. Okay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I would love to walk through just these. I know you said there are three components, and you kind of named them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is student assistance program. Can sure. you mention what that is? What that entails? A student assistance program is it's a it's an evidence based um, approach to making sure that no kids kind of fall between the cracks. So 
in one of the, the ways that we have organized our work is through four guiding pillars or four guiding principles. And that is being systematic uh, through collaboration, through maintaining a, a lens of equity and sustainability. So, so the idea of having a student assistance program that is infused with those, those pillars is really important to us. So student assistance program is this very systematic way where schools can look at all of their kids through um, a universal screener of some sort. They, they can do a universal screener. They can start without a universal screener if they, if they need to, but they have a systematic way. They develop a team. The team comes together and meets on a regular basis. It can be weekly, biweekly, monthly, but a regular basis. This team receives referrals from from um, the, the faculty, from the staff, from community members, from parents. They, they may receive referrals from doing these universal screens and identifying where the, the kind of the cutoff is in different areas. And then with, with that knowledge, with that data, then going and finding services to support those young people and those families along the way. And are the services that are then offered typically from within the school itself, or are they outside resources? They can be both. And they can be both just in terms of it it can be something as simple as, hey, we have a, you know, we have extra tutoring after school. We're going to, you know, kind of make that the recommendation to, we have a school-based therapist. We're going to make a referral for a school-based therapist to more extensive services, um, you know, partial hospitalization program or, you know, a connection to, you know, big brothers, big sisters, an outside organization. So it really, so part of the role of the student assistance program coordinator, whoever that person is, is helping to develop what are those services around me, who, who is out there and who is around me. And that, that really has been a tricky part because not everybody, you know, if you're in the school all the time, it's hard to know what's out you know, outside the, the four walls of the school. Right. So that's one of the things that we've been working on are developing ways for our, our, our folks inside the school to make those connections with the service providers outside of the school. So then uh, if there's a cost to it, is that the parent responsibility then? Uh, in, in most cases, it would be. In, in, in terms of mental health treatment, a lot of our service, at least in Ohio, I imagine this is probably true in a lot of places, the, the uh, co-located therapists can usually accept Medicaid as a form of billing or insurance. You know, I, I think that this is, you know, this is just my opinion about, you know, mental health and, and how we fund it. I think we're, we need to move to a, a place where we can find a way to support families where even a copay is, is too much. Right. Um, that's, that's really tricky if you are in kind of a, a mid-range community. That's in the schools that I were, you know, that I worked in. A lot of working families that had insurance, but they could not afford a thirty-five-dollar copay once a week so that their child could have mental health services. So that's that's a tricky part that we we're still working on. And in some in some regions, you know, the mental health boards and the um, the community service providers have figured out ways to provide some gratis you know, kind of services. Um, but that's a, that's a big issue. Right. And then my other question about that is if you come up your team, well, first of all, you mentioned the student assistance program coordinator. Is that just a, is that a staff person who has that as an additional role? 
It, well, that's a great question. Um, right now, yes, it is for at least our pilot schools. But because we've been doing this work and in Ohio, the, um, the Ohio Department of Mental Health has been really interested in working on the, the idea of early intervention and how do we address situations before they become critical. And so they just recently, we're just getting ready to start a pilot with them that will place a, a full-time, what we're calling behavioral health and wellness coordinator in um, 17 schools to be wow. a, yeah, we're very excited about that. That's fantastic. It is. And so what we've, what we've done is we've taken our 80 schools that were original pilot schools. We kind of put the call out and said, okay, who might be interested in this? You know, it's, it's another kind of pilot, but certainly you all have gone a year now and you understand what student assistance programs are and you understand some of this foundational work. So we, we want to start with you. And so we have um, these 17 schools who we are right now, we're in the process of um, making these memos of understanding between um, the local boards and the schools and community service providers to place a full-time person in the school who will who will run this. Wow, that's awesome. I can Im- yeah. only imagine the, all the community partnerships they can help build and connect parents to and be kind of a liaison in addition to uh, just having ample time to really do stuff really well. My my other question about if there's a referral to an outside resource, um, is there any accountability on the parent or any support from the school to make sure that that happens? Um, yes. Yeah, so so one of the yes. So one of the things that we we did again, going back to kind of that systematic place when when we did all of our research around this prior to launching the pilots one of the things that we found was that school systems that had some kind of electronic digital way to manage this work did much better than people who did it with spreadsheets which you know i i did it with spreadsheets all those years ago so i know that that's a tricky way to to keep track of all your kids and where they're going and what's going on so we partnered with a um a digital platform called Abre, and Abre is a is a system that really connects the dots for folks. It's a it's a it's a kind of a learning management system. It it is it. I tell people that it's like like your kitchen cabinet. You put whatever you want in it, but it holds everything. So it can hold it can hold data from different sources, but it can also hold um, one of the most exciting things that it does is it can connect parents to agencies. So your agencies can have their listing in, in, your, in your school app. They can have their listing in your school app. And if, even if a parent says, hey, I'm, I'm really concerned about my child, I'd like them to see somebody, they can go into the app, they have access to it, they can go into the app and just toggle a switch that says make this referral. And it doesn't have to be a paper trail of, you know, they have to call the school, the school has to write the referral, the referral has to go to, you know, the, the provider and all of that. So it just kind of, it, it shrinks all of that time and helps us to intervene early and quickly. Right. And so along with that then also becomes the ability to monitor have things been happening. So when the student assistance program team meets, they can go through all of the referrals and and double check and say, 
and it's a communication tool. Aubrey is a communication tool. So they can reach out to all of these folks and say, hey, how's it going with this referral? How's it going with this referral? What's going on here? And and they have in place all of the FERPA, HIPAA, you know, we're not talking about sharing um, information that's that shouldn't be shared. Right. We're talking about saying, was this referral followed up on? Do I need to do something? Do I need to go talk to a parent? Do I need to go do do something else to help this happen? So it, we're really excited about this opportunity to use technology to help make this whole system just flow better for kids so they get to the services that they need when they need them. Oh, it sounds awesome. And my last question about the student assistance program would be, is that a, a team that looks at all social emotional as well as behavioral concerns and academic concerns? Is it all of the, the above? It certainly can be. And it, it, we have really encouraged this, our pilot schools to use existing teams. If you already have you know, multi-tiered system of support teams, if you already have IAT teams, if you already have those teams that are in place that are looking at behavior or academics, then in, include this work in those teams. Don't create another team to do this. And not not for nothing, but we're talking about whole children. So if something's going on academically, it's likely there's something going on, you know, with with social emotional as well as behavioral. So we encourage people to, to kind of pull all of those together and, and work on them cooperatively. Right. And oftentimes it's figuring out which one is really impacting the other, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it the behaviors that's impacting the not being able to focus and do the work? Or is it the uh, lack of uh, understanding math concepts that causes the student to misbehave during math all the time? So um, I'm sure it's determining which is causing which as well. Exactly. Exactly. So let's move on. The, uh, the second component of the framework is strengthening specialized interventions for youth. And can you speak Mm -hmm. a bit about that? So the, 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 kind of the cone of intervention that we're also familiar with, we we know, at least here in Ohio, that our, our schools do a pretty good job of tier one interventions, and then we fizzle at tier two, and then we, we go straight to tier three. And, and just for the sake of the non-educators out there, could you just explain tier one, tier two, tier three? Certainly. So when we look at all of our students, we would hope that if you if you kind of look at a triangle and divide it into thirds, with the bottom third being about 85 percent. We would hope that any curriculum, any academic curriculum, any social emotional kind of programming, anything like that that we would do, we would hope that about 85 percent of students would respond well to that. And and Um, so that that actually is a tier in which 100 percent of the students receive it. But you're saying about 85 percent respond and it, it suffices for them. Correct. Correct. Right. Yes. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. It, it's given to everybody, yeah. but we, we anticipate about 85% will, will respond well to that. Um, the second tier is, is a more specialized tier. And we, again, we, we try to look at that in terms of data. So if you do some kind of universal screener or educators, it might be a Dibbles test. It might be a reading test. It might be a math test that says, Hey, if, if a student scores at a certain level, we know that they need help. And the same is true. It's, it's that tier two intervention, which is a smaller group of kids, about 10% group of young people that might need additional support in some way. And that can be with specialized social emotional learning. It can be with some kind of support group, some kind of 
um, grief and loss group, a depression, anxiety group, a test taking group, something, something to that effect. And, and that might be a small group that the school social worker is leading or the school counselor. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And then the, the third group, which is the tippy top of the, of the triangle is, um, you know, three to 5% of, of kids we would anticipate might need that level of intensive support. So those, that might be the, the in-school counseling that might be, um, the in-school drug and alcohol, you know, therapists that might be working with them. If you're, you know, if you are screening for, for those kinds of things, those are the more high level, very intense services that are, are typically one-on-one kinds of services. Right. And so I know that uh, as the second tier, you talk about strengthening the specialized interventions for youth. In what ways are you strengthening these pieces? So one of the things that we're, we're really hoping to do is help schools realize that there are, that there are those intermediate steps. Uh, and, and what does that look like in a school? And we've worked with some, some folks out of um, Arizona, Dr. Steve Elliott, who has put together a, a, it calls it the Think Rules Academy, and it's really about looking at in in any in any domain, how do you create an intervention that is a, a tier two intervention? How do you how do you create a whether it's a pullout group or a you know a, a group that would be you know kind of um, a specialized that that would get specialized training in a in a very specific area? So we've been providing some training to our, our teachers and to our staff. Um, we've also been working really hard, again, to help them find these service providers. Because I, I think that a lot of what happens is we, we go from tier one to tier three because that's all we have readily available to us. And within, at least in the state of Ohio, there are there are many, many service providers who are, are prevention service providers who some of them have funds, they, they get grants or they, you know, have dollars that are, you know, filtered down for them to, to do these kinds of things, to do training on DBT therapy or to do, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the PEX Good Behavior Game and there's, there's pull-out groups that, that can happen. So it's, it's also about connecting them to those services so they know how to, how to efficiently get those services into their buildings and to work with them. Okay, awesome. And, and actually create those partnerships and, and like you said, actually get them into the building doing the work. Mm-hmm. And is there typically a cost for the school then? You know, I, I know I'm asking a lot about cost, but a lot boils down to cost, right? I'm sure in Ohio it's the same as everywhere else. We're looking at budget shortfalls and cut money left and right. right. So do you believe that there are partnerships in the communities that you can pull into these schools, even in the rural areas and such that provide those services at no cost to the schools? I think so. I think rural areas are a little trickier because you just don't have as many service providers, but I can tell you when I was, when I was a social worker in the school and I did this kind of thing, I, uh, my district gave me a budget of $5,000 to serve five buildings, which is not a very much very, very much money. And each year I was able to bring in between a million three and a million five dollars worth of services. And that's just being able to, um, that's why having a a full-time person is so important because that lets that person go out and raise their hand and say, Hey, you're going to do a pilot. We'll, we'll do that. Do, do, you know, do that in our building. 
And then they come back and they say, okay, we've got more money. We want to do, you know, we want to do this next thing and we want to do this next thing. So we had partnerships with Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We had partnerships with several of our local provider agencies. Um, I would get sometimes some, some grants along the way. We, we very frequently people would call and say, um, we, we know that you like to be a pilot and I love to be a pilot because I got lots of services for my, my kids that way. So I think that it, it does take something. It, it takes that individual person, um, which is why I'm really excited about having the, the, um, behavioral health and wellness coordinator in the schools, because I think when they have the time to do that, when they're not, as, as a assistant principal, I'm sure you do not have time to go sit at a meeting hoping for one little droplet of, hey, that might be a, that might be a lead for, for a service. Right. But, but I could do that. Yeah. And, and so we, we, I think the more that that happens, the more we'll be able to get those services into the schools. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes, I think that role to have that coordinator position would just be huge. Because they would have that time for that outreach. They would have the time to meet with people, to create those partnerships, and to figure out together how can we get the, the cost of this paid for so that we can get you into the school. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. So uh, next, let's jump to the third component of the framework. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. So I, I would have to start by saying, the mental health needs of our students are over the top, right? I mean, we need a lot more support than we're able to give them. As schools, we're, we're really struggling, I think, to support the all of the students with the great mental health needs that are there. But I also think that teachers, and I'd prefer to even just say educators, staff, need way more mental health support and the the support for the staff is so oftentimes overlooked and I've been advocating for better systems of support for mental health for educators since well before the pandemic and the pandemic has only exacerbated it so I'm curious what you've seen first of all as far as the needs of educators mental health if you could speak to some of what you've seen the stories you've heard and so forth and then get into some of what your program is is offering sure so we we did a couple of things early on we we did a just kind of a a needs assessment with our schools around around some of the, the things they were experiencing and this this translates into to staff wellness as about 75 percent of of our staff folks reported an increased concern in the mental health of their young people. That's a heavy toll for a, a, a educator to, to carry, right? To, uh, to know that huge. that has gone on. They, they also reported a 60% increase in, the, in being concerned about their kids around trauma and suicidal ideation. So we know that our, our staff, our school staff, have kind of taken on this additional burden of of are the increased needs of our students. And then you add on that, the the fact that, you know, people have been isolated and you don't maybe necessarily have your eyes on kids all the time, you know, and and you take away that ability to kind of see for yourself if things are okay. That's added a lot of stress and a lot of, you know, anxiety to our, to our, our staff. So that's, that's one area that we've, we've noticed we did some listening sessions with administrators and teachers and, and staff that worked in school. And we, we heard really 
not surprising things, but very interesting things like the need for connection that that they need to connect with each other and they need for things not to be always business. And I, I think probably what's happened, this is just my, my assumption is that, you know, things have gotten so kind of out of control and so kind of wily that when we do get together and we do have meetings, it's very organized because we've got lots to do, right? <laughs> we've got to get through everything. But just that, that connection, the teachers are missing that connection with each other. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's part of the the way schools are structured, right? I mean, it's so isolating. You're, you're in your classroom the entire day. You're the only adult in there for much of the day, typically. You get your 50-minute prep to run around and try to get prepared for the day or for the next day. Uh, you get your 30-minute lunch that, you know, if you're an elementary teacher, by the time you get your kids to the lunchroom and pick them up, it's a 20-minute lunch maybe. Um, and there is, and I, yeah, I get it. And then it's staff meeting and yeah, it's business, business, business. And for us currently, we're still doing large staff meetings virtually just because of COVID and to, to care for the, the, you know, safety and wellness of staff. Sure. But you know, another piece I'd like to mention, and this was something I spoke about well before the pandemic even, especially in a large urban district, like where I work and, and I think any district and, and even there are issues in the rural areas too, I'm sure. But we're dealing with a lot of students who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis and struggling even before the pandemic. And they come to school, the students, and that trauma creates certain behaviors and stories that teachers hear. And it really has implications and consequences to this, the adult's mental health, you know, the secondary trauma or vicarious trauma or compassion trauma, as it's known as. Um, and educators don't have support systems in order to debrief about that or talk about that. I know of a first grade teacher who had to tear uh, scissors out of a first grader's hand who was putting it at their neck. And, you know, they call for support. We we get it all de-escalated and then it's like okay good luck with the rest of your math lesson no time to process no time to uh, for anything and now with the pandemic yes and we have teachers I, I feel like I'm ranting now but we have teachers you know who are giving up their prep times because we had so many teachers out that they yeah. had to give up their prep time to cover for other teachers and you know we're all worried about keeping kids in school for their mental health yet they have six different teachers throughout the day who are revolving through or they're getting split into different classes and half the class is there because the other half's quarantining and, and then the, the others are coming and going and teachers can't even maintain and, and keep the scope and sequence of their lessons because so many kids are gone. So it has been super challenging and I don't know if the general public really understands the amount of stress our educators are having. Now I'll get off my high horse. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. I know you're exactly right and I, I think that that secondary trauma is, is is so important, and I I think that we, at least one of the things I heard from from some of our teachers is even in in Zoom time, they saw things that they never saw before when when kids were zooming. They saw what their home lives were like in some cases. They saw how things were being handled at home, yes. and and that that added that that trauma piece. And so I think you you really hit on something when we talk about how do we support our our staff 
and and a lot of it comes back to time and we heard that over and over and over again time is the biggest challenge because we don't have time all of the things that you just mentioned we don't have time to eat our lunch we don't have time to prep we don't have time to do this we don't have time for training that was another thing they were so um so excited to get back to training that was not about technology right. they wanted they wanted to do training that was about youth development. They wanted to do training that was about their subject matter area. They they didn't want all of their training to be about how to do a successful Zoom meeting, which it, it has been for the last year, is how, how to use technology to um, to work with, with young people. And it was needed. It's it you know it was a necessary thing and it was it was very draining and and I, I can appreciate that. Right. So, so one of the biggest challenges then is how do we can supply resources and we can supply, you know, manuals and, and resources and free services and all kinds of things. But we can't manufacture time. That's the one thing we can't manufacture is time. So so that becomes, I think, the the kind of the sticking point for for schools and administrators is how what are those ways that they can they can give time in some way back to their, their staff. Yeah. I saw in about November, there were two school districts out East that went to a late start Wednesday for the remainder of the year, just for the sake of creating additional planning time for their educators. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a really outside of the box way of thinking about how can we support the educators? And that and that speaks to to staff wellness. You know, that's that's not only a, a an efficiency kind of mechanism. It's also a staff wellness mechanism. If staff know that hey, I'm going to have this chunk of time on Wednesday, it, it alleviates some of that stress. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what uh, as a part of the the three component framework, how are you all addressing the staff mental wellness piece? So, so I mentioned that we're working with um, interpersonal wellness, and right. so we're we're identifying the the eight dimensions of wellness according to the um, Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration. There are um, eight dimensions of wellness. People probably are familiar with these: emotional, physical, occupational, social, spiritual, intellectual, environmental, and financial. And and one of the things that we we talk about in our team and we talk about with with other with our, our schools is a lot of times that the wellness piece gets uh, um, kind of stuck on the physical. We're going to put a basket of apples and have everybody wear a pedometer, you know, or we're going to there's nothing wrong with with mindfulness and yoga. And we say that, that those are our two options and there's so many more options for folks to practice mindfulness in, in the way that's meaningful to them. So, so we really want to, to go through all of these eight dimensions and help people find, you know, kind of work through having a plan for wellness in each one of those areas. And I can just, I can give you an example that, that um, I, I know a, a young woman who owns a hair salon and she was talking about that, that she's young, she's under 30 and she was talking about the need to, she decided she needed to start putting some money aside. She's been putting all the money into the business and she just felt like she needed to start putting some money aside 
So she went, she took some financial classes for women. She set up a, you know, an online account. She's been putting some money in. And her final statement to me was, I just felt like that was good self-care. I'm taking care of my future self. And I love that because so many times we don't think about financial self-care as being part of wellness. But she had found for her that that way that was providing self-care. It gave her peace of mind to know that she was doing this work. And it's the same with all of all of these things. Wellness is not self self-care and wellness, which I think self-care kind of gets a bad rap now because we think of it as, you know, taking a bubble bath or, you know, drinking a glass of wine or, you know, eating chocolate. And that's that's not self-care. That's those are nice things that we can do for ourselves. But self-care are setting up those systems and and boundaries sometimes and practices and rituals that make our lives better and more meaningful. Right. I, I hear you saying it's not just a one-off. It's not take a hot bath and, and things are better and you're feeling better, but kind of creating systems. Exactly. And so that's why we're looking at this this roadmap idea of, of what is what is your roadmap? What is the a, a building's roadmap for health? And then in turn, what is your personal roadmap for health? So what are these things that you're going to do and how are you going to, to reach reach these these things how are you going to to be you know healthy and and have mental well-being and and have a sense of purpose at work how how are you going to feel connectedness in in your social life how are you going to be stimulated in intellectually and um in in your environment what do you do to keep your environment um that helps you feel better and feel more empowered so all of those things work so really helping people understand that it is it is more than like you said, a one-off, and it is it is about this whole package of things and putting those things together in a meaningful way that you work consistently on. It's not it's not a one-day thing, right? So it sounds like most of what you are all offering for the educators is around professional development and creating a plan and helping people develop their own plan around each of these eight areas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it. Is there any or or any talk of, and maybe this gets more complicated, but actually do having some uh, provider services for the adults? You know, just as you talked about having community resources for the mm-hmm. students to go to for actually for community services, therapy, and so forth. Is there any? Are there any pieces like that, or being anything being considered for the educators? Sure. So we've been we've been um, really encouraging our schools. A lot of schools have EAPs, but staff don't know about it. So employee assistance programs, and and we are encouraging our our schools to um, dig into their their EAPs and find out exactly how those EAPs can be helpful to their staff. And uh, an EAP and uh, an employee assistance program can be the opportunity for someone who is experiencing say, compassion, fatigue, to go see a therapist five or six or seven times and yeah. kind of get, you know, kind of get back on track or or figure out how they're going to, to manage that. EAPs can bring bring information to the school and do, you know, lunch, brown bag lunch seminars and, and provide information about, you know, very specific topics. They can also, they're also a great referral source. So, 
it's not just in, in your, your own life, but um, if you have a family member who is, you know, you're concerned about substance misuse, they can, those EAPs can help you find services for your, you know, your family member that you care about. So, so utilizing services like that, that a lot of schools are already paying for that service and helping people tap into that in a way that's, that's helpful and, and healthy. I, I did just talk to um, one of our pilot schools on Friday who told me one of the things that they're doing is they have, they have a, a therapist, a mental health therapist that sees the students at their school, but that mental health therapist who is with a, a, an outside organization, she has office hours that um, a couple days a week she has office hours that staff can just pop in and talk to her and she can give them support and help and assistance. So I, I think it, it is about looking at the, the resources that are around you and helping helping staff figure out what those what those resources are and, and how to how to use them. Right. Yeah, I think you know the, the EAP piece, I mention that to staff all the time. If if I know somebody's going to the funeral of a loved one or something, or I know they've they've shared something traumatic with me. I always remind them about the EAP in our district. And, and I was actually, I actually just learned a new piece like two days ago that I was really excited about because I've always felt we get four free uh, confidential sessions with a therapist through our EAP, but I didn't realize that that is actually for one topic. So mm-hmm. then if you want to meet with them again, four more times on a different topic, you still, we have that ability too. So I think not only knowing the EAP, but really digging in and knowing it well to be able to share with staff members, if you're an administrator and staff to know their own EAP as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really good point. And we're really hopeful that when, when the schools do the, their roadmaps, their, their school-based roadmap that they'll be able to look at what resources are, are close to, to, to them. Um, I can just tell you in the school district where I, I was located, um, we had a really active health department who was really just kind of right across the street from the, the school I was, I was um, physically located in. And they had created walking paths around the city and, and had marked them. And so for, for us to be able to utilize those walking paths and for me to be able to get the flyers of where these walking paths were, and they very intentionally, because we had a relationship with them, they put them around each of the schools. So there that was a mile really walk. Cool. It is really cool. So it, it is about what is your rela- relationship like with your community so that a, a staff person doesn't have to, to think too hard about, okay, what do I, uh, you know, I have, I have 10 minutes at lunch. What can I do? Well, one, one lap around the block around the middle school is a quarter of a mile. You know, and, and we, we know that. So if that's something that that, you know, is important to you and helps you feel better and helps you get back into your job and feel great, that's awesome. In, in any of these other things, what what are those other things that that schools can bring that are part of their communities and they can bring into the buildings that support these eight dimensions? Right. That oh, sounds great. One uh, one piece that I haven't heard you mention at all and I'm curious of your thoughts on it is there's a lot of talk about schools being more trauma informed mm-hmm. and do you provide any kind of trauma informed uh, strategies for staff sure and we have in the past done that and we typically there are there are a number at least in in our area there are a number of organizations that do trauma-informed care 
So if they're existing in other places, we try to connect people to those, um, you know, to those resources. One, one program that is um, starting to get a foothold here in Ohio is um, something called Handle with Care. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I haven't heard of it. It is, um, it's a really interesting program that started in West Virginia, and it started with um, police officers who are going into homes and seeing young people in traumatic situations, not always abuse or neglect situations, but, you know, sometimes they're, they're called to a home and it's, it's just a, a trauma situation. Somebody's fallen, somebody's, what, whatever the situation is, it, it's a traumatic situation. So they devise a, a plan in where they can contact the school and say, hey, just watch out for Johnny tomorrow, handle with care. He's had a rough night and they don't go into all the details and it's, it's not, it, it just is the heads up for the school so that they know, okay, we're going to keep our eyes open. We're going to be on the lookout. If, if this kiddo needs something extra, we are going to, we're going to wrap around him and, and do that work. And, and it's starting to kind of, um, we're, we're, we're working on this in Ohio um, to, to um, make this widespread throughout Ohio. But again, the idea is that if if police officers and first responders are seeing these kids and they care about these kids, they care about these families. And if they can relay to a school, hey, you know, keep keep eyes on this kid tomorrow. So when this kid comes to school and they are struggling, they you know, they're putting their head down on their desk or they're, they have a little bit of an attitude. It, it doesn't automatically escalate into a big you know, ordeal. We, we know that there's something going on here that we need to manage. And that's helpful for the teachers because now the teachers know it, it's not disrespect. It's not just same old, same old. There's a, there's a challenge here that this, this child needs a little more TLC. I might send them to the nurse so that they can lay down for a minute. I might call the counselor and say, you know, can he come down and see you for a second and, and see what's going on? So that's that's a trauma-informed approach that I love because a lot of times we talk about trauma-informed care and we talk about the brain science, which is all wonderful, and then we say, okay, now go do trauma-informed care. And this is a really tangible example of how you can be trauma-informed and and do some action with it. Right. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I think as an administrator, if I had a list or would get names once in a while, I would immediately send that to our social worker and say, hey, can you just pop, you know, connect with the kid, <laughs> see how they're doing, check in, maybe check in with the teacher and have that heads up, you know, like you said. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, this is awesome work. Awesome work. So the grant for this program, you made it sound like it ends at the end of this school year? It, it ends September 30th of this year. So okay. September 30th, 2022. And then do you can continue to work with the wellness initiative on different grant proposals and so forth? Is that your plan? The, um, the wellness initiative is this particular proposal. So we are, like I said, we're, we're working with the Ohio Department of Mental Health on the um, school behavior health and wellness coordinators. Right. And um, we, we're hopeful that we just continue to bring all of these services together and, and make sure that um, kids have access to services without having to jump through hoops. Yeah. Well, that's phenomenal. Phenomenal work you're all doing. Sounds great. Well, 
Deb, uh, one thing I want to ask you, I ask all of our the guests on the show is, and, and I'll focus on educators because they're the adults that we're talking about. If, and, and with your experience as a social worker too, if you, if there's an educator who's listening to this show and is thinking, wow, I am one of those educators you're talking about that's dealing with secondary trauma and I'm feeling incredibly overwhelmed and stressed out, what, what would the, what piece of advice would you give them? I would say to you, give yourself permission to not be okay for a minute. It's the, the world will be here tomorrow. And, um, you will do a better job tomorrow if you just take a break from it. And whether that's, um, take a break and to, to take care of yourself, whether it's to take a break and figure out what your next step is to keep yourself healthy. Don't, don't beat yourself up because you are working hard to do good work and, and it's hard. You're doing hard work. So don't beat yourself up, love yourself a little bit, give yourself some compassion and you would do that for a friend. If a friend came to you and shared with you what they were feeling, you would not talk to them the way you talk to yourself. So treat yourself like you would treat your friend. Yeah. Oh, excellent advice. So Deb, thank you for all the work you're doing around student and educator mental health. I think it sounds, and just health and wellness in general, sounds incredible. It sounds like great, great work you're, you're accomplishing. And uh, I also want to thank you for all of your time uh, tonight and for joining me on The Depression Files. Well, thank you for having me and um, for, for highlighting our work at Miami. All right. Excellent. Well, make sure you stay healthy. You as well. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at the depression files at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to the depression files. 